Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. Welcome to this episode of Six to Eight Weeks. I'm Brian Feely. I'm one of the sports medicine surgeons at UCSF. I'm joined by Drew Lansdowne, one of my colleagues, and we have the honor of having the bow tie. PT, Danny Keller, who's one of our outstanding physical therapists at UCSF. Um, Nirav is off making how-to videos for Twitter on how to shave his head. Um, it turns out he actually has a full head of hair, but he likes the look in the halo light, so he can't join us tonight. Um, so Danny, welcome. Um, I think we've never had a physical therapist uh, on, our, on our podcast, even though we probably interact more with physical therapists on our day-to-day -day, uh, work than any other subspecialty. So what made you decide to be a physical therapist and what is the training like kind of from college and beyond? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I've watched a lot of the, or heard, listened to a lot of the podcasts. So you guys are doing a great job and obviously I get to work every day with both of you and in the Rob as well when he's not shaving his head. So um, I, I love working alongside you guys. Um, as far as uh, where my passion came from, you know, it's, it's a common question that people ask us when we're treating them. Um, mine came from a weird place. I didn't, I played sports growing up. I played a lot of sports. I played soccer, baseball, uh, and volleyball all the way through college. So I had a lot of experience with sports, but I, I was lucky enough to not have any real serious injuries. Um, the only physical therapy that I ever got to watch was when my mom got tortured when she broke her ankle. So, um, didn't have a great, great viewpoint on what they did and, and what it was, but I knew I was always interested. And, um, I went into college as an English major. So I thought I wanted to write. Um, a bunch of essays and teach people how to do it. Um, and I got about uh, two years in and decided writing essays about hummingbirds wasn't that interesting anymore. So I started looking into what classes I could take after I dropped a couple. And uh, one of the only classes that was left was introduction to kinesiology. Um, I had to look into the dictionary on what kinesiology even meant and figured out that exercise sounded kind of cool. So um, I started taking some classes and got really into it. And, and I was initially going to go into orthopedic surgery, actually. Um, and then I met chemistry and chemistry and I didn't get along. And, uh, and I also met a resident who uh, told me he was 30, married with two kids and never saw either any of his family. Um, and I went, well, that sounds kind of rough. And then I met a physical therapist who said, oh, I work a nine to five and I get to spend lots of time with patients and I get to teach them things. And I said, oh, teacher medicine. I like these two things. These go well together. Um, and so that's kind of how I fell into it was uh, bringing teaching and medicine together. So how long is the training for physical therapy after college? Yeah. After college. Yeah. So after, after four years of undergrad, or if you're super smart three, um, or if you're not as with it, five, um, then uh, it's another generally two to three. So there's some two-year programs out there that are doctorate programs. And then there's three-year doctorate programs, which is the most common all the programs now are doctorate programs, whereas you'll meet some physical therapists who are masters, um, even some that have bachelors. Um, and then there was a transition for a while where it was a master's with an option for a doctorate. So now all programs are doctorate programs and uh, it's anywhere from two to three years. Yeah, I think it's funny. I often get patients who say like, did you write out all the instructions for the physical therapist? And my response almost always is, I wrote that they can see you for your shoulder. It's an insurance document. They have a graduate degree in what to do after that. They are beyond trained to figure this out. But yes, I wrote down evaluate and treat. 
Yeah, and some of you guys get us in trouble because you'll write, uh, I want you to see them six times a week for the rest of their life. And then we have to explain why we're not going to see them six times a week for the rest of their life. So I, I appreciate you not writing that, first of all, you know. Um, Danny, within physical therapy, um, like, what do you focus most on and um, how did you decide on that? Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I specialize in orthopedics. So I'm an orthopedic clinical specialist. Um, I have a specialty uh, certification in that. And then I also treat a lot of sports. Uh, and I also work with our uh, limb loss and limb salvage populations. So I work with amputees uh, and those who have um, endoprostheses for, from cancer treatments. Um, so those are my big three realms is orthopedic sports and amputees. Um, I always knew I wanted to work with orthopedics and sports. It was always my passion. That's what I wanted to do. It was my biggest interest. Um, and then I got into, uh, to amputee care probably about five, six years ago when I got to UCSF, I worked with Rami Weinberg, who's uh, one of my colleagues there and he needed some help. And so he asked me if I wanted to come along and it had always been something that interested me. And I think seeing some of the adaptive athletic populations and, and watching the Paralympics, it was always a really kind of cool thing for me to see. Uh, so I got really into that population and, and now I, I absolutely love working with that group. There's uh, now three of us that really work at UCSF with them and it's super passionate about it. It's amazing. It's a nice, it's a nice balance of things where I get to work with sport with athletes sometimes, which are their own personality types and are awesome, but can be really challenging. And then just general orthopedics from, kids all the way up to 99, which is a, a nice mix. And then I get to work with the limb loss po population. So I have a nice balance at UCSF. And then I get to go to Cal and work with the athletes at Cal. Um, and so it's, it's really, I'm very privileged to do what I do on a regular basis. Nice. And then what other areas of um, specialty could a physical therapist have? Yeah. So there's multiple types of specialties and, you know, it's, my brain's not going to catch them all. Um, I pretend like I know all of them and every once in a while I meet a physical therapist who specializes in something and I'm like, I didn't even know that existed. That's amazing. Um, but you know, you can specialize in oncology, you can specialize in neuro, uh, neurological disorders. The most common specialties you'll see are, are OCS, NCS, and SCS. Um, and that's orthopedic clinical specialists, neuroclinical specialists, and sports clinical specialists. So those are the three most common that you'll see. Um, OCS is probably the highest number of, of specialty PTs because you don't have to specialize. Um, and then there's women's health. There is, um, uh, man, so many. I can't even think of all of them. Geriatrics. Um, and so there's lots of different specialties out there. It's kind of something for everybody at this point. Now, I think a lot of the times when we refer patients to, you end up seeing the patients far more than we do, mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes probably 10 to 12 fold times more. How much of your job is the physical part of it? And how much of it is the therapy part of being a physical therapist? Yeah, it's a good question. Also, how much of the T, the therapist, is them getting therapy about you guys is the <laughs> other question of that. It's all Right, right, yeah. Why did Drew say that? Um, so I would say, you know, it's a it's an interesting question. It's a really it's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think of us a lot more as the physical side, um, but I think a lot of what we do is more of the therapist side. Um, we probably spend the majority of our time educating patients on what exactly surgery they had. It's amazing how many how many patients go in and have things cut by you guys and repaired by you guys and have no idea what you even did 
Um, they're just, you know, they trust you, which is good. Um, but then they have questions about what happened. So we educate them on what happened and what options they have and, you know, what exercises to do obviously is a big amount of time that we spend, but also, you know, how do you improve your pain when you're working all day long? And, and what does that look like? So, um, and then, you know, ACL rehab, right. After they come and see you and get their ACL repaired. I always tell patients, you know, 60% of this is going to be the mental barriers and 40% is going to be the physical. Anybody can get stronger. Anybody can get motion, but overcoming those emotional barriers and those psychological barriers is going to be the thing that I'm going to help you with the most. Um, so I would say the majority of what we do is, is the T not the PE. Yeah. And I think there's definitely good data coming out that, 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 mental part of ACL recovery and probably for other injuries as well is really important and probably is more than just how you feel, but actually your body's interpretation of how that body part is recovering and your body part just doesn't have the language to say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. So it's interpreted as, uh, I'm not quite as confident as I want to be, but I can't, I can't tell why. And I think it's really nice, especially when we have that communication between surgeons, patients, and physical therapists to say, this person just is not looking ready, or this person is doing great and is ready to go. 100%. You know, it's, it's something we see regularly, and we see it in the research right now, right? We're constantly trying to figure out what's the best test for return to sport. How do we know objectively that this person is back? And objectively, we're probably not going to be able to fully know because we need to look at the other factors that are involved there. When we look at something like a triple hop test, right, which was previously the gold standard. Now we look at it and we say, well, what do they, what do they really look like? And how do they feel when they do that? What does that symmetry look like? What does that control look like? Um, so it's a little bit more kind of like a gymnastics judging versus, you know, like the hard scoring where it's kind of like, well, they looked like they landed a little hard there. So maybe we should adjust that a little bit. And and I think that we're going to see that carry over and then us being able to talk to you guys, which I mean, working at UCSF, being able to just shoot you guys a text and say, hey, here's what I think. That patient feels so much better when they've got it from both sides of, you know, the surgeon saying, hey, we're concerned about this. This is what we're looking at. This is why we're not sending you back to sport right now. And then us saying, yep, exactly. And here's how we're going to improve that. And that whole, whole kind of wholesome care is really, it's huge for patients. It's amazing. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's such an advantage when um, the patients stay, I think, and are able to do PT with us as well as have their clinical care. And so Danny, like we see so many patients with, um, you know, like meniscus tears or rotator cuff tears that uh, we know they can get better with physical therapy. Um, and they'll often ask us, like, how does this actually work? Like the tear is still there. Um, that's not changing. And then we know that you know, people will feel better, will function better, but how do you explain you know, that the treatment is working and that they're you know, getting better? Yeah, I fix everything structurally, Drew. That's the answer. I just, I just know how to fix it mentally. Magic, yeah. Magic, yeah, I do a lot of magic tricks. Um, pull a meniscus out of the hat. Um, so yeah, it's a good question. And, I, and I've gotten that question a lot, which is you know, my doctor ordered an MRI, it shows there's a meniscus tear. I don't think physical therapy is going to help me before we've even tried, right? And I think the conversation we often have to have is, well, look, we see a lot of structural things on imaging. We know that structural things exist, but that's a picture in time and it doesn't tell us anything about function. And when we look at the way you move, what I always tell people is, you know, that meniscus tear is a window into what kind of dysfunctions you've had 
and it tells me about the movement dysfunctions that we can improve. Passively, there's nothing I can change. That's Dr. Dr. Lansdowne, Dr. Feely, Dr. Pandia's job. They change the structure, the, the, the passive structure. I, I, I'm going to work with you on the active structures. What are the things that support those passive structures and take the load off of them? If we can take the load off that structure that has some damage to it, then symptom-wise, we should see some improvement. If we don't, we've always got backup, right? We've always got the surgical option, but there's nothing wrong with trying to improve that active system and take the load off the passive because if you can, odds are you're going to notice a difference and, and you're going to be way better off in the long term doing that. Yeah, I'm hoping, you know, you mentioned research a little bit in the past. I'm really hoping that as we get better at understanding and evaluating these complicated motion patterns, we'll be able to pick out things, not so much just in how the knee is bending, but how the knee is bending when it's slightly injured and how that's related to forces across the hip and the lumbar spine. And I think we're actually pretty close and using some more kind of um, statistical shape modeling and more advanced I don't want to say artificial intelligence because that suggests a robot's going to do it, but more statistical ways to figure out what's actually going on that's causing the changes. Because I think oftentimes, especially physical therapists and to a lesser extent, orthopedic, orthopedic surgeons get a sense that the movement isn't quite right, but we don't exactly know how to quantify that. And we don't always know what the best way is to then, especially for us to change that or perturb the system. And I think that's where physical therapy is really helpful is when gait is off or uh, throwing motion is off or upper extremity kinematics are off it, it, in your day-to-day -day activities, going to physical therapy really does seem to make a huge difference. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think it's a constantly evolving thing. And I think the more we look at it, the better, you know, you, you'll hear a lot of talk these days and, and the physical therapy profession is its own worst enemy in the sense of we have these huge rifts in thought process of, oh, we should be looking at movement and, oh, it doesn't matter. We should just do these things because we can't, we can't fix these little things and human nature is, and human bodies adapt. I, I fall on the, on the side of there are things that lead to bigger things and we need to be able to try to find those out and as much as I don't want a robot to take my job, it'd be pretty cool if I became like a half robot where I could kind of watch it, but then also adapt. So that'd be kind of cool. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where some of this research goes and, and see where, where we can find the mal adaptations over time that we can start to prevent some of these things from happening rather than just improve them after they happen. Yeah, um, we've seen your baseball swing. You were half robot. I think that was why you weren't playing professionally. I was hitting it too too hard, too far. Is that the problem? Yeah, no, yeah. too hard into the ground. Yeah, uh -huh. you, yeah, you definitely dusted the plate. Um, no, I didn't make contact after first grade, so it's fine. Um, so what are some of the things that, you know, oftentimes people go to physical therapy and they say like, well, I went to one physical therapist and they just kind of looked at me in the corner and made me do exercises. This other physical therapist did all this hands-on stuff. What are some of the tools that physical therapists use that you think are really effective? Yeah, it's a good question. This is, uh, again, that, that rift that is in the physical therapy world of the manual therapist versus the anti-manual therapist. And there, there tends to be less in the middle, just like kind of the world these days. 
So, you know, for me, I, I'm very much a hands-on and hands-off therapist. So I use a lot of hands-on techniques. Um, I, I fully believe that when you touch a patient, it makes a difference. Um, there are definitely patients that just need exercise. But, you know, some of the other tools that we use, you know, at UCSF, we're doing a lot of research on the suction cups, um, what we call myofascial decompression. And so we're really trying to put science behind the cups and look at negative pressure treatments and say, what exactly are we affecting here and, and how are we affecting it? And I know that when I've had injuries in the past or aches or pains, I've always felt kind of like I want things to be apart. I want them to separate. And so the thought process makes sense. We just want to put the science behind it and, and also put to rest some of the, the BS that is said about it of blood stagnation and toxins and being able to pull, you know, COVID out of your lungs. These are all things that are just ridiculous. So, you know, you, you hear a lot of negative press and negative feedback about the hands-on techniques of, oh, you're, you're not creating independence for your patient. And, oh, you're not actually doing anything. You're lying to them and you're creating this false sense of what's actually happening. Um, but, you know, anecdotally, we can see changes in manual therapy. In the research, we see changes in the manual therapy. It's still not great research, but it's there, it's coming, um, you know, so, I use suction cups fairly regularly. I'll use scrapers every once in a while more on tendinopathies than anything else, mostly just to reduce viscosity between the ground substance, the tissues there to get, get them moving a little bit better, get them less sticky, um, make them more, more of a efficient robot and less like the tin man, like I am when I wake up in the morning. Um, and so, you know, I use my hands, I use cups, I use, I use scrapers, uh, I use, I'll throw stuff at them. I use all kinds of tools. You know, I use a plunger on the knee sometimes. It's great for the kneecap. It's weird. It's really fun to just stick it on their knee and then walk away, see what they do. Um, so I use all kinds of weird stuff. Um, but, uh, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to I'm doing this to improve the way that this tissue is moving, the way your neurological system is, is processing this so that I can then take you into these exercises and we can work on trying to do this efficiently and, and with reduced pain so you can do it more efficiently. So lots of tools. Some are good, some are bad. I think that's the first time I've heard of the plunger being used Ooh. on the knee. True. Get to come up, man. Yeah. Plunger on your knee. That. Yeah. The, the plunger is actually one that I have come to really like for telephemoral stuff. Um, it's, it's something that made sense and it's pretty amazing when you, when you do it, how much of a difference you can make. It's, it's actually surprised me how much. Um, so yeah, come on up. We'll, well, well, I won't take the one from the bathroom this time. I, All right. <laughs> I did that with Brian last time and it was a mess. So, yeah, but my knee feels great. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Not going back. <laughs> uh, and so Danny, I think one of the conditions that is extremely frustrating for patients is um, frozen shoulder and, you know, it takes forever, um, painful, really restrictive and uh, there's definitely debate in our field about whether or not uh, physical therapy does anything. I'm on the side that I think it really helps. Uh, but what are your thoughts? Does that um, impact the natural history? Like, what does it do for frozen shoulder? I'm glad you asked that question late in this interview. Well, I was warmed up because that's like one of the hardest questions you could ask me, Drew. <laughs> All right. Can't ask me about like an ankle sprain or an ACL yeah. there, huh? Um, yeah, frozen shoulder is terrible. Um, I have treated a lot of them and I have tried so many different routes with it. I think when you look at the research on frozen shoulder and rehab, it's all over the place and really no decisions have been made. Just like you said, we, we don't really know. We don't really know why it happens in the first place, right? We know that there's an autoimmune component to it. We know it's worse with diabetes. We know it's worse in women, but we don't know why. 
Um, and so not really understanding the pathophysiology behind it makes it hard to treat. Um, and I think, you know, what I've found anecdotally over the years is that pushing hard and cranking on it and making them pain and, and becoming that, the, the personal torturer or the, you know, I've been, all kind, I've been called all kinds of names. Um, we talk about this, you know, doctor versus provider talk these days. You should hear what they call physical therapists. It's pretty dangerous. Um, but, uh, but, you know, cranking on it and, and putting them into a lot of pain to try to get motion, it doesn't work any better than not putting them into a pain and trying to get motion. So I, I have definitely gone away from the painful side of mobilization. I do think some joint mobilization techniques, trying to get the capsule to move a little bit more outside of just the, the muscles is helpful. Um, so I do think some hands-on is important here. Um, but I've really gone to regular passive stretching at home I, and, and as, as consistently as possible. And I honestly try to get them a cortisone shot. I really think cortisone is hugely beneficial for these patients, especially early on. And I think because it's an inflammatory process, if you can halt that in the beginning or at least reduce it, it makes a huge difference long-term for these patients because the ones that we see that get the steroids versus the ones that don't, it, the ones that don't tend to have a harder time. So I'm, I'm definitely a, a corticosteroid proponent in frozen shoulder combined with some consistent passive stretching. And I, I think that that works the best, to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. I, I think all of us go in waves. For a while, I thought it was hardcore, bring a tear to the eye. I didn't really see any benefit from that. And then I tend to agree. I think the um, the ultrasound or fluoro-guided imaging for injections to make sure they're, they're in the joint and some decent physical therapy, oftentimes with the physical therapy, just reminding them they will get better. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and that's that's a big key with all physical therapy, right? The, if they think that they're going to get better with it, they have a much better chance of getting better than if they don't think that they're going to get better with it. I think we've seen that in rotator cuff research all over the place. Um, I think your name's been on some of it, Brian. So, you know, we, we've seen that a lot and, you know, sprinkling a little fairy dust on it every once in a while doesn't hurt either. So I try to do that as much as possible. So we're about a year into COVID and before COVID, you were a physical therapist that actually saw patients in person and made eye contact. Um, you also were one of the big proponents of doing telehealth physical therapy. And I've been really impressed with how that's gone. Um, what has been your experience with it? What, what's worked, what hasn't worked? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I mean, I've appreciated your uh, work with it as well. And you've, you've been an amazing proponent trying to give us patience and, and push the telehealth PT side of things. And that's been extremely helpful on our end when you know, a surgeon saying to a patient, hey, this is going to help you go and see a physical therapist on telehealth. They're not coming in immediately going, this isn't going to work. They're coming in saying, oh, Dr. Feely said he thinks this is going to be helpful. Show me what you got. And, and that gives me an opportunity. So I do appreciate that, first of all. You know, telehealth, telehealth is an amazing resource. And it's something that was pretty untapped before COVID. We didn't use it really at all. I think in the last five years, let's say, I probably saw two telehealth patients. Um, and that was just because they missed their appointment and were stuck in Berkeley and decided that we could jump on and they had a question. So it was really not that much. Um, so telehealth has allowed us to reach rural populations. It's allowed us to reach patients who, you know, haven't had great physical therapy experiences and are nervous about physical therapy and don't want to go in. Patients who don't want to pay the $800 to come and park at UCSF. 
um, you know, don't don't want to three hundred and fifteen a month. It's it's not that bad. You get that surgeon discount though, you know, like there is no discount. <laughs> um, so you know, I think it's it's been amazing to see what we can do. I think I've learned a lot in it. I I kind of dove into it right away and just said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it, and um, and let's see what we can do. And being able to to have patients come in and and tell me at the end of their sessions, you know what, I didn't think this was going to work in the beginning. And it really did. And I'm very surprised, but I'm really happy at the way that it did um, has been pretty amazing. So I think a hybrid system is what we'll see in the future, whether it be an inpatient or an in-person eval followed with, with some telehealth visits to, to check in and then back into the clinic for a couple more things and then back on telehealth. I think that's what we're going to look at. And, and I think over the next five, 10 years, that's what we're going to see is a hybrid system. Um, I need to be able to put my filters on every once in a while. I can't have a cat on my head in the clinic. And so I need to be able to put my cat face on every once in a while and, and treat that way. And how else can I better do it than with telehealth, you know? Yeah, we know you've got about seven cats at home. So it, it's cool. Well, we don't need to bring up that one died, Brian. All right. It was eight and poor Fluffy, you know? <laughs> and so Danny, like the, I think the telehealth um, is certainly like something newer and you guys are doing a great job with it. And what else do you see as like new directions in physical therapy? Like I know you know, one thing is there's a lot of interest in like blood flow restriction treatment, um, especially after ACL surgery, meniscus surgery, and um, maybe that or other directions that you see the field going? Yeah, that's a great question. BFR, um, I'm glad you brought up BFR because I love BFR. I think it's an amazing thing. I think Johnny Owens has done an amazing job with the research that he's done through the Center for the Intrepid um, and looking at these different populations and putting research out really fast. Um, it, it's rare to see research come out that fast on an intervention um, or a therapeutic modality. And so to see the, the research that's been done there is, is pretty amazing. I've had a couple of conversations with Johnny and, um, and he is continuing to do some great stuff. I highly recommend them to any PTs who are looking at doing BFR. You know, I think it's definitely something we're going to see in the future. We, we know how bad quad atrophy is after ACL repairs and, and immediately after really any knee surgery, any ankle surgery. Um, and so BFR has been a huge benefit to our, to our treatment plans, getting people's quads more hypertrophic quickly, getting that activity back, getting them to load earlier. All that stuff, I think, is going to help outcomes. I think if we can start to bring some you know, some VR into PT, it's going to be helpful. We're looking at doing stuff with, with the Microsoft Connect right now to look at uh, mechanics and look at how, how people are moving on a very quick and, and easy way rather than having to go to a motion lab and get the dots put all over them and dance around like they're in a video game. Um, they can do it literally with a video game right in front of them. So that's going to be pretty amazing. Um, You're welcome. So I think, yeah, Brian dances around a lot in that thing though. So trying to get patients into it is like it takes forever because he's just doing pirouettes all over the place. Um, so I think, I think BFR is going to be a big thing. I think the, the way that we can look at movement and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier of being able to predict potential injury risk or, or risk of re-injury um, and return to sport prognostic prognostic factors, all that stuff I think is going to be huge. And I really think that's where it's going to go. And then I, I'm hopeful that on the manual therapy side of things, we're going to see some evolution there where we're going to start to understand it a little bit better and how it works and, and see some evidence coming out that way rather than just getting this, well, anecdotally, we know it works, but we don't have great evidence on it. And then the other side of, well, you don't have any evidence on it, so it doesn't work. 
um, I'd like to see some some middle ground come about there. Yeah, I think um, BFR has been great. I think it's really interesting how well it works. It was. I've got one final question for you. Um, last in the last couple of weeks, the American Academy of Family Practitioners came out that they no longer want to be called providers, um, even though this dips into the political state, politically charged arena of how much a doctor likes to be called doctor. And we know this because Dr. Lansdowne wears a stethoscope when he goes to the grocery store, just so people know. Um, do you think it matters if we call doctors providers? Um, I personally now have decided I want to be called surgeon, not physician. Um, I'm, but our friends from Columbia, where they went to the Columbia Physicians and Surgeons School, want to be called both. So do you think it really matters? So am I supposed to call you Dr. Surgeon feeling now? Is that- No, just surgeon. Just surgeon. It, oh, it's not surgeon doctor or Dr. Surgeon. You, it's can, just surgeon. you can also call me surgeon provider. Can I call you captain? Captain surgeon. Does that work? I didn't make that rank in the merchant marine. All right, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to hear this conversation, right? And um, and I kind of sit back and the majority of the those who are having a negative connotation on it are uh, physicians. And it's funny to me because those of us in the PT world have been doctors for a long time. And most people don't know we're doctors. Um, uh, and so it's always an interesting conversation when someone comes into me and says, what's the DPT after your name? I say, doctor to physical therapy. And they go, wait, you're a doctor too? And they go, yeah. And they go, why don't you call me? Why don't you ask me to call you doctor? I said, because I don't care. It doesn't matter, right? You can call me whatever you want as long as it's nice. Um, and so I have a hard time with the, the issue with provider. We are all providers. We all provide care to patients. Um, and... I think it's a little bit of a waste of time and a privilege to be able to say, I don't want to be called provider because I'm a doctor. Um, that's, a, that's a privilege game right there. And I have a big, big, big problem with it because, you know, I saw a tweet yesterday where uh, a physician was saying, if a patient comes in and calls me a provider, I'm going to tell them that I'm not appropriate to see them. And it was an emergency wow. room physician. <laughs> wow. And I said, wow, that's, um, you're going to turn down care to in an emergency room because someone doesn't call, because someone calls you a provider. That's pretty bad. Um, and I don't think it's ethical. So obviously I think there's a, a spectrum of, of emotions on it and it is a little bit charged. Um, but from my standpoint as a physical therapist and as a doctor and as a provider, I think patients should be able to call us whatever they want. And I think I've worked with a lot of providers who aren't physicians who are amazing you guys have some amazing physician assistants you guys have some amazing athletic trainers that work with you all of those are providers all of them provide care to mutual patients and for me the term provider is absolutely appropriate and and it, it I, I just yeah I, I could get on a soapbox more um, but I'll probably just fall off of it so um, I'll stick with where I'm at with that yeah, that's what, that's what Twitter is for. So exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I tend to agree. I think that it is tough. You know, I think as orthopedic surgeons, we were happy to be called providers when health when healthcare providers got to get vaccinated first, and I'm happy to be called surgeon when that means my PA gets to answer all the questions on our EMR that I didn't get to first. But I, it's a team. I, I think for any of our patient care encounters, a patient's going to see me once, a physical therapist 10 times, 
talk to my PA five times. If it's if it's not if it's not seen as a team, then the whole system falls apart. Yeah, and and I'll say it again. You know, I I say it to everyone that I work with, all the patients that I work with. I'm very privileged to work where I work right now. I've worked in other areas. I've worked with other hospital systems, and UCSF being able to have a relationship with you guys and being able to have the conversations where we can talk freely about how a patient's doing. We can have a conversation in the halls. I can text you about a question. That's important. And if someone is looking down on someone else who isn't a physician, if someone's looking down on someone else who is a provider, but isn't, doesn't want to be called that there's a hierarchy issue there and it's putting negative treatments into the patient. And the patient's the one that pays the price for that. And, um, and I think we are able to get past that and, and it's why we all get along and it's why we get to have a good time. And um, it's why, you know, we can trip each other in the halls and laugh about it, but, uh, but it, it gets bad for the patient when you don't do that. Well, this was a really great 30 minutes. Um, I'm hoping that anybody who listens to this has a deeper understanding of what physical therapy is like. Um, you know, it's always a pleasure to listen to you read read your stuff on Twitter and I'll work with you on patients. So thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and we appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Nira Bundia, Dr. Brian Feely and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.